Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Victoria Benyon, and the founder of the Victoria Benyon Podcast Booking Agency. And you're listening to The Best Guest, the podcast for business owners, creatives, and entrepreneurs who want to harness the power of podcasts to grow their platforms and increase their visibility. We're here to support you on your journey, bringing you actionable tips with each episode. Now, let's begin. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast where today we're joined by author James Morgan Jones who is one of our wonderful clients. James is the author of the Glasswater Quintet, a series of psychological thrillers with a supernatural touch. James, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me on. It's great. It's great to be here. Uh, So can you tell our listeners where you're joining us from? Yes, I'm in my little writing room in uh, a cottage about four or five miles outside Carmarthen, which is in southwest Wales. Oh, lovely. Very pretty part of the world. Yes, yes, indeed. Hey, so a quintet, you've written a whole quintet. Well, I, actually, it, I've, I've written four of the five. The last one is okay. yet to be written. Yeah. Yes, four. Um, well, I, I leapt <laughs> into it. I leapt into it years ago by... Um, at the tail end of, I, I did an MA, an MA mm-hmm. in create, creative writing at uh, Trinity University. Uh, actually, in one of their campuses is in Carmarthen, so that was very, really right. convenient. Um, and at the end of it, of course, you have to do a dissertation, which is roughly about 20,000 words. So that's what's expected in an MA. Right. And I decided to start a novel, which was, go, which was inspired by the area that I live in, which has a very interesting history, particularly one period of it. And I did that, the first part of the novel um, constituted my MA dissertation. So, of course, then when you get to the end of that and you, and you realise you've reached a little milestone, then you have to finish it. So I ploughed on yes. after, after the MA and carried on finished that Mm -hmm. novel and then had the idea that I could expand it um, using time as one of the major themes of the books by including other uh, well one particular location that I also know very well and but what I decided to do rather than making it a very linear affair was Mm -hmm. to um, as I say employ sort of shifting time zones and periods in as much as it it, the quintet takes a a, a, an anti-clockwise trajectory it starts in somewhere in the 2000s then goes back to the 1970s and then the beginning of the second world war about 19 about 1939-40 and then um the last one that was published last autumn goes forward again to the 1990s and then the last one which is is yet to be finished uh will bring us more or less up to the present or somewhere thereabouts wow that's quite an undertaking so how long has it taken you to write these books well the dissertation that I did was in 2007 8 mm-hmm. so I it's taken me that long but I've done other things as well in between I've written yes. uh, I've, um, I've got well one published volume of short stories there's another one which I recently completed which hasn't yet been published um, a volume of poetry okay. and also a full-length play so I've, do, I, I've done other things as well that's yeah. fantastic what does your writing routine look like do you write every day most days but because I have other things to do during the day as well I found that the most effective way of doing it was to put aside if at all possible a particular Mm -hmm. a particular time slot I set myself because as I say of having other things 
uh, on my plate as well, I decided that I wouldn't, it would be unrealistic to aim for a high word count per day. And mm -hmm. I found that for me, that was a good idea because I pitched it somewhere around 500 words, actually, which is not a lot, okay. but it's achievable on a daily basis. And yeah. in fact, if you keep that up every day, mm -hmm. It soon mounts up into a sizable amount. And sometimes you would do, you know, sometimes you would get going and do 1,500 and sometimes maybe 400, you know. But if you do keep it up and you keep to that discipline, you mount up your world count pretty quickly, actually. That's so that and advice. that works for me. Yeah, yeah that works for me. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're in a fortunate position and you have nothing else to do, you can. <laughs> obviously, well, you know what I mean is, you know, you yes, can put, you, you can, can put aside a whole morning. Say That's you can aim right. for four or five thousand a day. But mm. I, I I knew that that would not be. Yeah, that can seem overwhelming too. If you if your target yes. is five thousand words, can't it? And mm. I think I don't know about you, but I sometimes if I would say, oh, I'm going to write five thousand words, that might put me off even getting started. But five hundred. Yeah. It's also, I think, I think if you pitch too high, I mean, you can mm -hmm. become, uh, you can become exhausted, actually, yes. you tired, and then you become yes. despondent, and then you stop mm -hmm. writing, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, yeah, so uh, I, I think it's better to be sensible, but consistent. Yes, I think that's a really good idea. So when did you start writing? Have you always written? Well, I started actually when I was about 12 or 13. I I can remember actually one day just <laughs> announcing to my little gang of friends that I was going to write a story and they just looked completely blank, of course. <laughs> but I, I did, in fact, and I wrote several. And I, the important thing was I finished them. They were terribly, terribly derivative, of course. <laughs> of and, course. Um, and based or inspired mostly by things that I was watching on television or something like that at the time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But um, nonetheless, I did actually finish them. And I remember Daily Mirror used to have children's writing competition. And I remember mm -hmm. submitting a, a couple of things to that. And anyway, it went on and um, through my teenage years. And then I went on to drama school and there was a hiatus, quite a long hiatus because all that took over. And I came back to it much later. And seriously, when I decided to go on the MA, that's when it picked up in a serious mm -hmm. way. So I suppose that would be now right. 15 years ago. It's a long time. So you trained in drama. So how does that has how does that influence your writing? Does that affect your dialogue? Well, I think it does. I mean, I, when I started writing again, I didn't think about that. I I didn't necessarily connect the two. But as time has gone on, I can see that it does influence it in two major ways one is as, as you say the dialogue I mean mm -hmm. there, is, there is quite a lot of dialogue in my work and people have said you know you know your dialogue is always convincing which is really nice uh, and I think it that does it must definitely I think come partly from having an ear for dialogue that you yeah. know is nur nurtured whilst working in plays and so on and the other the imagine. other way is that uh, certainly at the end of all of the novels there's quite a dr dramatic denouement which is quite visual and, and as I say quite dramatic so mm -hmm. I, can, I can see that that comes from having a sense of building to some sort of satisfying dramatic climax which again mm -hmm. comes from well not, not just plays but films and television serials as well where, where that yes. becomes, that's necessary and so my, they, they tend not to they, they do at least end with a well they, there's a bang towards the end and then usually mm -hmm. a, a, bit, a bit of an epilogue afterwards just to tie things up but anyway so I can see how it does tie in yes do you tend to plan your books or do you just go with the flow I had a conversation about this with somebody recently and mm. I 
don't plan them in the sense that, you know, there are some people that literally meticulously plan out chapter after chapter, mm-hmm. and almost, ha- almost have a storyboard and, you know, tick things off yeah. and put arrows and all that. All that, <laughs> that, that, that yes, they do. <laughs> I've, I've never done that. And I can't okay. imagine doing that. I think it personally, uh-huh. I think it, I think it would kill me stone dead or, you know, kill my imagination stone dead. Um, I have a, I have a starting point and I have a, I have an idea for the general thrust of the book mm-hmm. and where it's located is and an idea of most of the characters and I usually can envisage the end however how I get there honestly is a complete Mm -hmm. unknown I've often thought it's like feeling your way in the dark a bit you know or with a very faint light (laughs) or or one of of those threads you know that um, that Theseus had in in the labyrinth something like that you know it's it's just finding your way can't I can't imagine meticulously planning it it would all seem a bit mechanical do you enjoy editing your books or do you prefer the first draft flowing creative stage? I'm afraid because I say I'm afraid because a lot <laughs> uh, you will you will read a lot of advice which tells you not to stop and look back in case you turn to a pillar of salt or something. <laughs> but you you know and in other words you know that it can actually be um, a harmful yeah. thing by by holding you up. Yeah, you can keep and, redoing it I suppose. Yes, but and I think that's basically quite good advice except that I don't follow it <laughs> I I obsessively uh, edit is your is the mm-hmm. answer to your question I can't help it I'll write something yeah in a, you know my, my 500 words or whatever it is and then I'll have to go back later that day and I keep going over and over it and it is a bit obsessive I must admit your progress may then be halting as it mm-hmm. were you know you, you stop um, go back a couple of paces then you take three paces forwards and it's yeah. it, it, you you gradually make progress but it isn't one smooth flow of getting it all out of your system for me no mm-hmm. I, I can't help it the idea that it's there on my computer with you know, a, you know dodgy sentences and <laughs> it, it, Ill, ill-chosen words and not good just not good enough mm-hmm. it just bugs me too much I have to go back and you know sort it out really no I understand that I read that um Dean Coote likes to have a clear page doesn't he before moving on he likes to be happy with it Oh, does he? It's interesting to learn what works for different writers. There's so many different approaches, aren't there? Who are the greatest influences on your work? Uh, well, years ago, I think it's always those early influences, isn't mm-hmm. it, that, that um, yeah. r- remain with you, whatever you may go on to read later on. I can remember the first writer that made an impact on me was about or just after or about the, the time I started to write, about 13, that's kind of age. I discovered Alan Garner. Have you ever read uh, Alan Garner? Uh, well, he's, I think, yes. I, know. I haven't read him, but I've, I have heard of him. Mm. He wrote uh, his books in the 60s and 70s mostly, um, he, but he is yes. still with us, um, but quite elderly now. But he wrote a series of novels that have stood the test of time and are classics. Um, but there was one in particular, one was televised actually um, very early on. And I remember that it was all very mysterious and ha- happened to be set in Wales, actually. It was called The Owl Service oh. um, and was really f- a very, sophisticated book for teenagers I have a feeling you probably wouldn't find something of that yeah that ilk so much now but the book of his that really had an impact on me at the age of about 12 or 13 was one called Elidor in a a way I can see how that that the influence of that is still there because Elidor is about um, a a group of children though they're three brothers and a sister and of course it's it was written in the 60s when there were still bomb sites around the UK and and they're wandering they're wandering dejectedly about around a bomb site in Manchester 
not knowing what to do with themselves and they encounter a strange fiddler and, and chap play amongst the ruins and they follow him into the ruined building and of course fire this portal they find their way through to Elidor <laughs> and are, are entrusted with treasures from Elidor to bring back for safekeeping to oh, to okay. to our world but then it's rather terrifying because then these forces from Elidor find their way through through mm -hmm. to, to the world that we live in and you know I just remember this mm -hmm. one one very scary moment when there are rattlings at the door and then you know that somebody opens the letterbox and there are eyes on the other side of the letterbox oh <laughs> trying, trying to get through from uh, Elidor I just loved Elidor and in fact I've read it again as an adult out of curiosity because you want to see oh you know would I be disappointed now and think mm -hmm. oh well of course I loved it then but ooh, I still think it, what he is he's a very quality writer and I think he's recognized as such and it's still mm -hmm. it's still readable even as an adult and you can appreciate how well it's done so there's that and then when I was mm -hmm. doing um a level English at school these were in the halcyon days when D.H. Lawrence was on uh, syllabuses he's one of those authors that in in the intervening years has fallen out of fashion maybe coming back a bit now but anyway we did Sons and Lovers for A-Level, and th this was a real eye-opener for me. It was really overwhelmed me, and I, I, I could see aspects of my own life in it. And it was so incredibly vividly written and, and so emotionally raw that I'd never read anything like it. And it completely, completely changed my whole outlook on literature and how, what it could achieve and what it could be. So there was that. And then in later years, Daphne du Maurier, because I think she is yeah. just the most fabulous storyteller. Mm, yeah, I and agree. Very atmospheric and, and place is very important. And of course, you get the, yes. going going back to Elidor, there is a, th a thread in, in du Maurier's work yeah. of crossing over boundaries into other dimensions, yeah, isn't there? Quirky writers like Beryl Bainbridge, I've got a great fondness for because she mm -hmm. was just so unique and very funny and uh, but she was quite a yeah. detached writer very different from Lawrence but th she does it so well it's very her and very individual and I like that so various Absolutely. people really yeah it's interesting how the the authors we read particularly when we're growing up do have an influence oh yes sometimes you don't you're not even conscious of it are you it's just no no it's just there mm. so what are you currently working on is it your fifth book yes it's the fifth point? one which is is going to be called the ice chandelier it's going to be quite um, a tough ride in many ways because it needs to. You need to tie up themes mm -hmm. that you've you've explored in all the other four books, and you need to tie them up in a way that's satisfactory for the reader and satisfactory yes. to make it a, a work overall. You know, so yes. that it feel it feels like a proper conclusion, not just oh, it's the fifth book. You know, mm -hmm. so um, it's it's quite in a way quite daunting. And again, it's yes. as I was telling you earlier. I've got I know where it's set. Yeah. I know I know roughly the themes. I well, of course, all the characters have to be all the threads of the major characters that you've used in the other four. Of course, in the other four books, as I say, the time goes backwards and then forwards, so they get younger and older again. And you, where mm -hmm. they are, where they are at this point, you have to think about how you're going to tie those up in a way that will satisfy the reader. Um, and I have a, again the dramatic denouement in place, or you know, in mind. Yeah. But I, how it will all unfold, I really don't know. <laughs> is it hard to keep track of the different threads that you've got going through the different books? Do you have that written down anywhere or are you quite good at remembering it all? I'm quite good at remembering it all, actually, oh. I have to say. And I seldom forget 
you know, there is that thing about some people, they start off with one name when they're writing a novel and yes. they, they change it halfway through and f- forgotten they've changed it. <laughs> well, I have to say yes. that doesn't really happen to me. Oh, if I, if I, I can usually remember, although having said that, I'm going to make some huge mistake now, probably. But, <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't jinx it. <laughs> no, no, but you, usually I'm, I'm quite good at remembering. And of course, I've always, I have to say, I do always keep a copy to hand. So if, if I did want to check anything, I can yes. always quite easily look it up. Mm-hmm. So, um, Who tends to read your books first when you've written them? Well, the editor. <laughs> yes I've got an editor I use um mm-hmm. well, she's she's done all of my work and I, I get on very well with her and I've met her personally and so on so and she's oh, got the, the, she's got the hang of me now I think mm-hmm. so I well it's it's she who reads them first and then whoever I mean I, there are people I you know people I know for instance who always you know are very nice about my books and will always come back to me and say oh I just love that one and mm-hmm. that was that was my favorite or whatever it's always nice to have those yes. people that you know so you said that you knew the title of your fifth book the title yes. do you tend to have the title in mind before you begin writing I've almost with these ones yes. I almost always have yes wow. well the, fir- the first one that I did um Actually, when I think about it, that isn't quite true. The first one that I wrote, as I say, which started with the MA dissertation, that that came to me during the writing of it. I actually, the second, no, it's not true, actually, because the second one and the third one came to me. What is now the third novel was actually mm-hmm. made, the first draft of it was actually written second. Oh. And then it shifted round, you know, and now it's called The Stone Forest. It originally started off as a, a novel called The Ivy Stone, but I right. changed I changed it. So that one did change, actually. And then the, the, the one that is now second, mm-hmm. I wanted something to convey because it, in Celtic in, in Celtic religion, as it were, I mean, which is very different from, from later Christian religion, there were various realms on the other side across the veil, and they were visualised as fortresses or castles of some kind, and there was the glass castle and, and so on and so forth. And the glass castle always appeared, or the glass fortress always appealed to me as an image because of the whole thing. Okay. Glass is a recurring theme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> glass and, and its possibility, its potential is a recurring theme throughout the books. This image appealed to me. It's where it was almost where the lost souls went, the ones that were not quite had not quite settled in the realm mm. beyond. Okay. So that was quite an interesting image. Mm. Um, but but there is well for a start there is already a, a, some I think it's a biography actually called the Glass Castle. But also to me that sounded a bit slightly fairy taleish to me. You know the uh-huh. princess the princess lives yeah. in the glass castle. You know yes. Um, the glass fortress was a bit lumpen, I thought. Mm-hmm. And then finally, um, uh, another word came to me, which was citadel. So it's actually called uh, the glass, the, the glass citadel, okay. which um, seemed to have a bit of a, a bit more of a ring to it to me. So yes, yes the, those did come gradually. But then the, the fourth one came to me quite early on, before I think I'd even started it, which is Eye of the Rushes, which is a play on words. It, it's literally um, a house that overlooks semi marshland, and there's a river with you know banks and rushes and so it overlooks this this scene with the rushes in which something abominable occurs of course in the in the rushes very intriguing titles I like them (laughs) yes it's almost as though the house is an eye of the you know Mm -hmm. overlooking the rushes but it's also there's and one one of the subplots is um there's a film being a hundred years later there's a film being made on on the the location about this event that occurs and so of course you've got the rushes in films and um the rushes when the rushes are being watched where something 
very unsettling occurs. So, you know, it's a, it's a double entendre, you see. Mm. So where do you get your best ideas from? Um, well, the first one, as I say, it takes place in two different time zones. One, one is it, it was set in the sort of 2000s, as I think I yeah. said, and, and that the, the present day is that is that particular period. And that's all written in the third person. But uh-huh. then it, go, it goes back about 160 years to the 1840s in this part of Wales. And all that part of it is a series of monologues spoken by two different people. And in fact, at the end, okay. at, 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 the, at a crucial moment towards the end, there's a third voice that also comes in. So they're all first person. But that idea came to me because I, uh, in this very, literally on this spot where I live, there were some really mm-hmm. interesting events in, in the 1840s in West Wales. There were the Rebecca riots and it was the, 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 mm-hmm. por- the, the poverty of the farmers was very extreme at that time. And toll gates were introduced at the, at the crucial points across West Wales and just down the road here at Carmarthen, where people mm-hmm. had, when they were taking their goods to market, they were expected to pay. And this caused uproar you can imagine because they were so poor anyway and then they had to pay to go and sell their goods so and there were other factors as well in that common grazing land was taken away so they didn't even have that it was it was outrageous actually um and many ended up in the workhouse of course this crucial event and there was a big riot basically in Carmarthen which was again very dramatic and Mm -hmm. um where where they tried to ransack the workhouse and dragoons were sent in from from Swansea and swept up the road on horseback and it was all it was all it was all massively dramatic but when they started the march to Carmarthen they literally went past would have gone past the front door of this cottage where I'm sitting now uh, and there's a little little chapel up the road where crucial mm-hmm. notes were pinned to the chapel door and uh, you know sending messages around and all of this so that was all very fascinating so it was yeah. that that I thought this has got to be explored as I'm literally living here now and I used yeah. other other things in my part things in my own life in the glass mm-hmm. citadel for instance which is set in the 1970s i start i start um in a location on the on the borders of essex and uh, east london which is where i grew up initially my aunt used bless her used to run a pub for a short time um okay. and her, her husband was a bit of a nerdy well i'm afraid he was kind of, <laughs> He was an alcoholic and uh, a gambler. Is it not a good combination? So, and not good to be running a pub, really. Definitely uh, not. No. <laughs> um, so I'm afraid that all went downhill and went a bit awry. And that struck me as having dramatic potential. In fact, my aunt, who sadly is no longer with us, but I did ask mm-hmm. her permission if I could use, if I could interview her for the uh, ah. for her account of those years, and yeah. whether and asked whether I could use it, and she said yes. And in fact, when I'd written that first bit of it, she did get to read it, which was nice, and I think she was quite pleased with it oh, but so I think you know that there are ideas from one's own life mm-hmm. and uh, that can be incorporated and yes. twi- you know and used in a way yes <laughs> yeah no, absolutely so. what's your favorite part of being a writer it's the pride of having I feel that I've actually mm-hmm. created something I know that sounds a bit yes. bland if I'm no. pleased with for instance yeah. in the, if, for instance in the stone forest which is the third one set at the beginning of the second world war mm-hmm. I decided to open it with quite a long section set in Barking Creek, which is where the river run, you know, the, the river roading runs down through Barking from Essex down to the creek at uh, uh, the Thames. And in those days, it was the most extraordinary place. It was very industrial on the edge of the river, of course. And then there was this bleak 
desolate but also rather beautiful a marshland extending oh. from it and right at the edge of the river were this is the term well it was actually at the edge of both rivers the Roding and the Thames were these two mm -hmm. rows of terraced houses back to back where the workers in the factories lived and mm -hmm. you can see photographs of it if you look it up and it's the most extraordinary location and there were these little cottages it's almost as though they'd been washed up from the river you know and left, yeah. left there and I found this very fascinating as a location and I thought well I of course in my lifetime it's never looked like that so mm -hmm. I can't ever say I visited it but I thought could I get bring that off could I recreate it in my imagination and make it work imaginatively and actually I am quite proud of that that section because I think it does work and it's quite atmospheric and quite poignant I think as well and that gave mm. me quite a lot of a sense of pride mm -hmm. to go back to your original question that. Yes. it's that sort of thing yeah. when you when you it, well, because it was a challenge because it wasn't something I knew personally although coming from that area I I have the sort of bleakness of the marshland edges in my mm -hmm. bones a bit in my bones a bit I think if I you know but you have to okay. look you have to look <laughs> for it yes you have to, you have to dre <laughs> dredge it up because as I say now it does not look like it did then you know I was proud of that and it gave me a great sense of achievement to have brought that off mm. so what do you like to do when you're not writing well, obviously, I read a lot. Yeah. Music is quite important to me. I've always mm -hmm. liked all sorts of music. Cats are a great presence in my life. I've I've been involved with them professionally in the past. Uh, they're still they they still are part of my life. And then people often ask me for advice. And I'm very interested in feline welfare and medicine. Although I'm not a vet, mm -hmm. I've never been a vet or anything associated. But I do know some quite um, high powered. Uh, lecturers, ah. lecturers in feline medicine and so on and um, that side of things has always interested me and interested yes. me and, and it's still a, still a part of my life to an extent. So, Did you grow up with lots of cats? Well this is weird I actually grew up, <laughs> I, was a, I, I was a great animal lover and I had mm -hmm. pr pretty pretty well everything except a cat yes. <laughs> but, oh. my, but my grandparents who lived next door had a cat and of course you know we as they lived next door and we were so closely related the cat was always wandering in and out so we almost did but no I had a dog I had a rabbit I had gerbils <laughs> gerbils tortoises terrapins a whole oh, farm budgie <laughs> I mean every I had yes everything I even had a, I'm ashamed to say now a few sort of wild things but I also always I have to say mm -hmm. in case anyone's listening violently disapproves <laughs> I always I always return them back I turn them to oh, whence they yes. came I had everything except a cat but now I have cats that have been in my life for a very long time now how many cats do you have at the moment oh at the moment three three yes we have elderly Rory who is becoming a bit doolally as the years go on oh. he's got so he's got so much wrong with him bless him but he's he's got he's carrying on gamely and he's quite stable at the moment oh, and then there's es Esme which is short for Esmeralda who was a very mm -hmm. cast out of a we think out of a car window and was found by friends at the side of the road with, um, oh, with, with, with an injured foot <laughs> when oh. she was about six weeks old tiny and she's she always was a bit semi-feral but she's mm -hmm. mellowed with mellowed with age and she's a sort of long-haired black and white job and then there's the glamorous Gertie who is again long hair but much bigger and um, and is quite glamorous looking tortoise shell long-haired tortoise shell so oh, and they're both they're both so a lovely. bit a bit formidable and, mm -hmm. and and Rory is dopey as the day is long really 
so lovely. Thank you very much for coming on to talk to us yes. today. I'll link up to everything in the show notes, but can you tell people where they can go to connect with you and find out more about your book? Yes, the best place to go is actually my website, which is all one word, jamesmorganjones.co.uk. There you will find everything about my books and various things. There's a media page and, uh, well, all sorts of things. And there's an email if anyone you know, wants to contact mm-hmm. me or any, anything. So everything is on my website. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for asking me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Best Guest podcast today. I'll talk to you again in the next episode.